I remember as a kid, um, on my days off from school, being at home and turning on a TV. Now, I was a Chicago public school kid, so we had a lot of days off. You know, you know President's Day, Martin Luther King Day, Pulaski Day, uh, and all the blessed teacher's institution days. But one thing I noticed after watching TV was that although it was our day off, the programming never changed. I turned on the television, and what do you see? Soap opera. General Hospital. Days of our lives. All my children. And one life to live. Those last two, all my children have been, have been on the air for 41 years. And one life to live for 43 years. And just about a week and a half ago or so, the unthinkable was announced. You may have heard it. It hit the papers that ABC was going to cancel these two soap operas. <laughs> now, I'm sorry if I'm the one who had to break that news to you. Some of you might be weeping in the moment inside. And so I apologize in advance. TMZ.com has this article on their website. It says, All my children have been on the air since 1970, and One Life to Live debuted in 1968. ABC released a statement saying, Guided by extensive research into what today's daytime viewers want and the changing viewing patterns of the audience, ABC is evolving the face of daytime television with the launch of two new shows. That is what they're going to do. Uh, the replacement shows will focus on health and food. But then a TMZ writer adds this, uh, this quote that, that made me belly laugh a lot. It said, Siobhan, our resident soap opera junkie, is literally crying in the back of our office right now. I felt bad for her. TV Squad asks one analyst this question. says, can you describe the impact of the simultaneous cancellation? The person says, this isn't like when a few nighttime shows are canceled or not renewed. Nighttime shows come on once a week for four or five hour, uh, years. These shows have been on five days a week, 52 weeks a year, for over 40 years. These shows are part of people's families. It's like a death in the family. People are really upset. People are emailing, tweeting, and calling. They need to connect over this. This is also greatly affects all the people who feel that these shows and these characters are part of their family. They talk about dramatic. I'm like, wow. I find it a bit ironic that a TV show called One Life to Live, that people spend this one life to live obsessing over a show that's not real, but um, that sounds incessant, insensitive, but I'll leave it at that. What is interesting, I found out, thanks to Wikipedia, that One Life to Live is not the, the original name planned for that show. The original name was supposed to be Between Heaven and Hell. And I got to thinking about this, One Life to Live, Between Heaven and Hell, and realized that this name of this show really does state a pretty profound truth. We have this life to live, don't we? But the question is, what, what do we do with this? How do we live this one life, this life that God has granted to us? Now, many people take that and they become like thrill seekers. You know, they go jump out of planes and climb mountains and travel the world. Others uh, really want to be benevolent and give and join the Peace Corps and give money to people and help out. And others, I think all of us in some way can relate to this one. We have this mindset of, well, this is my life. Better make the, the most of it. 
but taken to a bad extreme, there becomes this mindset that let's eat and drink because tomorrow we'll die. And interestingly enough, this is precisely the question that's addressed in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's a question of, what is this life really about, and is there anything after it? Is this one life to live just a here and now, and, and then we end at the grave and there's nothing else? Or is there something beyond this life? And that's a pressing question. And again, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have a Bible with you today, would you turn your Bible to there? If you don't have your Bible, our ushers, uh, they will be making Bibles available. And it's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it will be on page 961 in our uh, pew Bibles when, the, when they're brought forward, if you need one. So uh, keep, lift your hand if you need a Bible. Lift your hand if you need a Bible, and the ushers will bring one to you. The question that's raised is, is there life beyond this life? And if so, what is that based upon? And today you're here to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see in this chapter is, if Jesus really raised from the dead, then there is a life beyond this life. And what difference does that make for us right here and right now? So I'm going to read a portion for uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Again, it's page 561 in the Bibles that were handed out. If you have your own Bible, you turn there. And follow with me as I read. This is what God's Word tells us. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so they preach, so we preach, and so you believe. Would you bow with me in prayer as we commit this message to the Lord? God, we thank you for your word, which instructs us. And God, as we open it up together, even right now, Lord, I pray you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have us say, what you would say, Lord, through your word. God, I pray that you would speak through me, that it would be you that pierces hearts and stirs our hearts, God. So we pray for your help, O oh Lord. I pray for your help. 
And God, we lean wholly upon you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I already mentioned, what this chapter in the Bible is addressing was a teaching that was going around saying, there's no hope beyond this life. There's no, there's nothing beyond the grave. And what the Apostle Paul is seeing here, he's, he's trying to tell these people who live in this city of Corinth in ancient uh, Rome. And he's telling them, don't, don't listen to these people who try to sway you from the truth. He says, don't, don't listen to them. On the contrary, he gives them some direction. And he starts out with a reminder. He tells them in verse 1, now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Now, this word gospel is a word that's used frequently in the New Testament and in our churches. And the word gospel, really what it means is good news. And that there is good news. And what Paul always preached was the good news that Jesus came <clears throat> and died for our sins. That he paid the penalty for our sins. He was placed in the tomb and raised on the third day. That is the gospel that Paul preached. And that's what he's telling them. I want to remind you about this. This is what I taught to you, and this is how it was taught to me. That Jesus died, buried, and was raised from the dead. And he tells them in verse 2, he says that this is the good news that has saved them. It is saving them and will ultimately lead them to God. But he also tells them to hold fast this word. He says, cling on to it. This is truth, and you hold on to it. Hold tightly to it. And don't be swayed, because if you are, then you believe in vain. All that you have believed has been a waste. Paul's warning them, don't go there. Now, someone once said that a good way to become famous in this world is to challenge the Christian faith. We see it happening here in 1 Corinthians. We see it happening in our own day. New York Times bestsellers uh, write books with titles like this by Richard Dawkins, it's called The God Delusion. Christopher Hitchens has a book called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. And these people question the authority of the Bible and the truth that God is. And people are drawn to that. I'm reminded of a man named Bart Ehrman who grew up in a church and, and, and ran away, basically. And now he's an advocate for, he's one who's trying to disprove the Bible. And he's written books like this. One is called Forged, Writing in the Name of God, Why the Bible's Authors Are Not Who We Think They Are. Another book, Jesus Interpreted, Revealing the Hidden Contradictions in the Bible. And yet another book he wrote called Misquoting Jesus, The Story Behind Who Changed the Bible and Why. So in our day, just as in Paul's day, people are questioning the truths that the Bible teaches. And just as Paul was telling the people then, he said, hold on to the truth. This is what God's message is for us today. Hold on to truth. Now, I don't know where you are in your faith journey today. Maybe you're at a place where you really have a hard time believing that God does exist. Or maybe you're at a place where, you know what, I do believe in God. I do believe in Jesus. But I'm not really sure whether or not he raised from the dead. This whole miracle thing is hard for me to hold on to and grasp. Or maybe you're one who does believe that Jesus died and did raise from the dead, but it really has no bearing on your day-to-day -day life. And what Paul's going to do here, as he's telling them to hold on to the truth 
and let it change them so that their lives aren't wasted in vain. He gives them three proofs for Jesus' resurrection. And he does that because the entire Christian faith hinges on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, there is no Christianity. There's no. There's no faith. And there are many other implications that Paul's going to draw out. But the first one he draws out, <clears throat> he says that the Old Testament, essentially, the Old Testament taught that Jesus, that a Messiah, a Savior would come, die, be buried, and raised from the dead. And we see that in verses 3 and 4. And Paul tells them, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So he's, he's not saying this is something he made up. It was taught to him. It was passed down. And Paul's writing this about 20 years after Jesus rose from the dead. He said, These are, this is something that's been passed along. And he says, I passed it on to you. And this is what it is. He says, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That's referring to the Old Testament. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He's saying Jesus' life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection is right in line with what the Old Testament taught. And when we think about where does it teach that this Messiah, this Savior, would, would die for the sins of people, we can look at a, a, a book like the book of Isaiah in chapter 53, which says that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our, his own way. But in talking about the Messiah, it says that the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. And Jesus was the fulfillment of that prophecy. But the Old Testament also teaches that this Messiah would be buried and raised from the dead. In Psalm 16, it says, this is David writing, he says, you will not let your Holy One see decay. His body will not waste away. Which means that when he dies, he will be raised to life. So Paul's saying, first of all, the Old Testament taught that Jesus would raise from the dead. So that, that's proof number one, that Jesus is consistent with what the Bible teaches. He stresses that Jesus rose from the dead. And I already mentioned, this is what the Christian faith hinges upon. And to this day, there are many people who want to deny it and come up with theories as to what could have happened. You may have heard some of them. I know one theory is that Jesus wasn't really dead on the cross, but he fell into some sort of coma. And when they placed him in the tomb, he came out of the coma after three days and was resurrected and appeared to be resurrected. The problem with that theory is, how did he move the stone? He had been beaten, flogged, nailed to a cross. His side was pierced and blood and water flowed. Jesus was dead, brothers and sisters. Others will say that the disciples stole the body. You know what? These guys realized all this was wrong. He's on the cross and they're thinking, guys, it's time for plan B. Because this guy isn't who he said he was. Let's, let's get together. After three days, let's remove that stone and steal his body. Now this might seem kind of plausible only, but what we need to, to really consider is one thing. All of the apostles, except for John, died for their faith. Would they knowingly die for a lie that they themselves created? And I mentioned John was the only one who was not martyred or, or killed for his faith. But he's considered a martyr because he was beaten. He was exiled in prison. 
Uh, church history tells us that they, pour, they poured uh, boiling oil over his head. He just didn't die. And he died of old age. Would these men die for a lie that they themselves created? The disciples could not have stolen the bodies. I read a book where one man said that he believed it was a mass hallucination. Kind of like Bigfoot or a UFO where people say, yeah, I saw that thing in the sky. But there's a big problem with that theory, and I'll get to that in a moment. But there were plenty of people who saw Jesus at different times who knew Jesus and could recognize whether or not this was really him. Especially his mom. Others will say, in, in the Gnostic tradition, you might have heard of Gnosticism in the news these days. They say, well, Jesus wasn't really human. He was just a spirit. But the Bible tells us when Jesus rose from the dead, he says, put your fingers in my hands. Feel the nail pierced markings here. He was flesh. He ate fish with the disciples after his resurrection. So he was a, a truly human being. Or as the Quran teaches, Jesus didn't die on the cross, but God took him away, and it was someone else who took his place. And in the Muslim tradition, many believe it was Judas who died on the cross, and that God made everyone to see Judas and think he was Jesus. But again, that makes no sense. Mary was there. She knew her son. The apostles were there. Judas hung himself. So when Paul says that Jesus rose from the dead, this is important information. And he recognizes how the whole Christian faith hinges on this. So what he does here in verses 5 through 11, he lays out eyewitnesses. He lays out people who saw Jesus and says, go talk to them and ask them what they saw. Look at verse 5. It says, and he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter's Aramaic name. Peter was the leader of the disciples. Peter denied Jesus three times in the courtyard. Peter saw Jesus raised from the dead. Paul says, go ask him. You guys know Peter. Go ask him. You guys know church history tells us that Peter would die a crucifixion as well, but upside down they crucified him. Would he die that death if he really didn't see Jesus? Paul says, go ask Peter. And then he says that Jesus appeared to the twelve. This is to the apostles. They walked with Jesus for three and a half years. They all saw Jesus resurrected. And like I said, they were all but John killed for their faith. But then Paul lays out the big whammy in verse 6. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. You know, that mass hallucination theory, I mean, maybe three or four people, they've been drinking something interesting. 500 eyewitnesses? I mean, really, 500? And then Paul adds this. Most of them are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Some of them have died since Jesus rose, but most of them are alive. And you know what he's telling them is, go ask them. Ask them, did Jesus raise from the dead? And they'll tell you. And then he continues on in verse 7. Then he appeared to James. This is not James the apostle. He already mentioned the 12 disciples. This is not the other James. There, there was two disciples named James. This isn't, this isn't him. Who is this James here? 
Well, we find in the Gospels that Jesus had a brother named James. And then in Acts 15, this guy comes back on the scene. And there's a big difference in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. See, when James is first mentioned, he doesn't believe in Jesus. It's like, look, you're my brother, and I think you're a little psycho right now. He just doesn't believe him. I know where you came from. I was raised with you. You know, I, I know who you are, Jesus. And he, he wouldn't believe in him. But in Acts 15, we find that this same James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. What happens? How does he go from one who did not believe to one who was a leader in the church as well? Well, I think Paul's telling us right here. He saw his brother crucified, and he saw his brother risen from the dead. And that changed James forever. And then Paul mentions all the apostles. And lastly, in verse 8, he said, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Like, what do you mean by untimely born? Well, he says it in verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Did you guys know that Apostle Paul, before he was a Christian, was an enemy of the, of the church? He hated Jesus. He approved of the killing of Christians. And he says, I don't deserve God's mercy in my life. I'm untimely born. I, I didn't come to know and believe in Jesus like a lot of them did. I hated him first before I believed in him. But he says, I saw him risen from the dead. I went from a persecutor to a preacher. From an enemy to the greatest defender. Why, how does that happen? How does someone go from hating Jesus to loving on him? Well, in Paul's case, he saw him alive after his death. And that changed Paul forever. I like to watch uh, Chuck Gowdy's ABC I Report. You ever see those? Where he goes undercover into some place, he gets a tip, he brings in the cameras and investigates what's going on. I've seen him once uh, go undercover to these meat delivery people, and they weren't putting their meat in the proper temperatures in their trucks, and they're just dropping off old meat and just trying to turn around money quickly. And he came with the cameras, and the you know the people are all like, "Oh my goodness, hide the truck," you know. And I've also seen him uh, this past week where there was politicians who flew out to China, and they brought their families with them, and they were using taxpayer money. And he went with his I team and reported this, and his I team is an eyewitness team. He wants to show proof that these things are happening. And when he comes in and testifies, there's a truth that's being stated. And Chuck Gowdy's just one man with his camera crew. But just think about what Paul just laid out. Over 500 people saw Jesus risen from the dead. In our court system, two people can witness and, and, and convict someone or make them innocent of a crime. But what about 500 people whose testimonies confirm one truth? And that's the strength of the witness behind Jesus' resurrection. So we see that the Old Testament teaches that Jesus would raise from the dead. The eyewitnesses did it. And the third thing, probably the most powerful thing, is the lives that were changed as a result of it. From Peter to the apostles to all the people to Paul himself. Their lives were changed. 
Now the question remains for you and I. Did Jesus really raise from the dead? And the evidence clearly says yes. So if Jesus did raise from the dead, what difference does that make in your life? Are you one who just doesn't want to give up your life and surrender it to Jesus? You enjoy living for yourself. Perhaps you've got all these questions and you're a skeptic and you don't want to, to let those things go. My prayer is that today would be the day you let those things go. That today would be the day where you would surrender it all to Jesus. Saying, Jesus, I believe that you did die for me. I believe that you were buried. And Jesus, I believe that you did raise from the dead. And because of that, I'm going to give all my life to you. I'm not going to let myself be held back by some skepticism that I can't even really hold up to. Would today be that day for you? The day where you say, enough is enough. I'm not going to be kicking and screaming anymore, God. I want to give my life to Jesus. He did raise from the dead. See, this is a powerful truth. And the whole Christian faith hinges upon it. Because what Paul does then, he says, what if Jesus didn't raise from the dead? Let's just say that. I said the Christian faith hinges on it. So let's say Jesus didn't raise from the dead. Well, he lists four things that happen as a result of that. Look at verse 12. I'm going to read verses 12, 13, and 14. It says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. First of all, what Paul is saying is, Jesus didn't raise from the dead. You're wasting your life believing in him. You're wasting your life believing in him. The second thing he says in verse 15, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. He's saying, if Jesus didn't raise, then we lied to you. And we were dishonest about who God really is. And those are two things already. You're wasting your life. We're misrepresenting God. And thirdly, in verses 16 through 18, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. See, the Bible teaches that Jesus died for our sins. And sin has the power of death. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, death entered the world. And because Jesus died for sins, he had to conquer death, too. He didn't conquer death. He truly didn't cover our sins. So if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we are still in our sins. We cannot be forgiven. That is a dire situation. So if Jesus didn't raise, we're wasting our lives. We're misrepresenting God. We're still in our sins. And then verse 19. If this life is this, if, this li- if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Jesus didn't raise, we have no hope beyond the grave. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we too can raise from the dead when we trust in him. But if he didn't raise from the dead, we're wasting our lives, we're misrepresenting God, we're still in our sins, and we have no hope beyond the grave. 
And for this reason, so many people have given their lives trying to refute the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One such person that was looking into these things and really wanted to see, is this true, was a man named Lee Strobel. He graduated from Missouri University and then went on to Yale to get his law degree. And when he went to get his law degree, he became a good, good lawyer. He could investigate claims. Now before that, one day he had a meal with somebody. And uh, he had landed a job with the Chicago Tribune as their law editor. And a friend of his said, man, thank God for that opportunity. And he said he was struck by that because at this point in his life, he was an atheist. And he told his friend, I cannot believe that someone as smart as you would believe in God. I can't believe it. And then his friend replied, he says, I can't believe someone as smart as you doesn't believe in God. And he says that's, that question stuck with him. Is there a God? And later in his life, for two years, he would investigate whether or not Jesus truly raised from the dead, whether or not Jesus was who he said he was. And after two years of investigating, he concluded Jesus did come and die and raise from the dead. And then he wrote a book called The Case for Christ, where like a lawyer, he lays out the evidence saying, this is what I found. Jesus raised from the dead. And Lee Strobel today is one of the leading defenders of the Christian faith because he investigated the claims of Jesus. Because if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, you're wasting your life if you're believing him. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, you misrepresent God when you say that he did. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, you are still in your sins and you can't be with God in eternity. Hell is the only destination appropriate from those of us who rebelled against God. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we have no hope. But then verse 20 is here in your Bible. I want all of us to look at it. Verse 20. Paul's already defended it, and here he affirms it. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What Paul is saying is because Jesus rose from the dead, if you put your trust in him, you too will be raised from the dead. You will have hope beyond this life. You are not wasting your life if you're living for him. You are not misrepresenting God. You are saying the truth. You've been forgiven of your sins and you have hope for eternity if you place your faith in Jesus. Paul says Christ has been raised from the dead. So what difference does that make in your life? Well, as we put on our flyers and we made clear that we were starting a series today, kind of introducing it called Don't Waste Your Life. And what we're going to explore this Sunday, uh, starting today into the following weeks, is that the life that is not lived in vain is the life, uh, the life that's not wasted is the life that's lived for Jesus. If you don't live for him, you're living in vain. It's a waste. And four times Paul uses the word vain in this chapter alone. Look at verse th- uh, 2. He says, By this gospel by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So he's saying, hold fast to the truth. Then it won't be in vain. You won't be wasting your life when you've surrendered your life to Jesus. But then he again mentions it 
in verse 10. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. What Paul is saying is my life was changed. I'm not wasting it anymore. It's not being lived out in vain. Because Jesus rose from the dead, I could surrender my life to him. I can live my life for him. And then in verse 58 of this chapter, you may have to turn your Bibles there. Paul summarizes all of this. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that, you're, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Friends, the Bible teaches that Jesus came and lived the perfect life, that he died for your sins, that your sins in part put Jesus on the cross, and that you deserve the punishment for that. But Jesus took it, and he satisfied that wrath that's deserved to us who rebelled against God. And because he did that, he atoned for our sins. He's forgiven us. And that he rose from the dead saying, you can have victory like this beyond this life. Trust in me, Jesus said, and you won't be wasting your life. How long would you let yourself go pushing him away when God is calling you to himself? Are you tired of wasting your life? Are you tired of living in vain? Well, surrender it to Jesus. Surrender it to him. can't make any excuses. Yesterday I was watching the Bulls game. That was a good one. And their star player, Derrick Rose, turned his ankle in the middle of the game. And throughout the game, you could tell this was hindering his, his play. But at the post-game show, he was interviewed and he was asked, hey, Derrick, that turned ankle, is that, did that hinder your game today? Is that what prevented you from being as aggressive? And he looked in the camera and he said, I'm making no excuses. This is the playoffs. I was like, oh. I got thinking about that. He's making no excuses. It's the playoffs. Yeah, how many of us make excuses with our very lives? And certainly they are more important than the playoffs. We make excuses with eternity. Eternity hangs in the balance, friends. I mean, if this stage were the span of eternity, our life right now would be but a drop. We can't make excuses. We can't let the skepticism from our past hinder us from believing in Jesus Christ. We can't let our fears of, what's that going to mean for me? What do I have to give up? How do I have to change? We can't let those fears hinder us from saying, Jesus, I believe in you. We can't let our past hurts with the church or with even God hinder us. We say, God, I know you are righteous. You are holy. You love me. And you sent Jesus to die for me. I'm ready to, to turn over those hurts, turn over those fears. We can't let our family pressures hinder us. And many of us feel those pressures. If you give your life to Jesus, if you become a Christian, your family may look at you differently. They may look at you differently. There's nothing sugar-coated here. If you give your life to Jesus, things will change. But how long will you let excuses hinder what's in store for you in Jesus Christ? 
Have those who have given their lives to Jesus wasted their lives? Did Lee Strobel waste his life? He's a lawyer trained in Yale. He could be making big money, I'm sure. Did he waste his life when he gave it to Jesus and started defending the faith? Did Said Musa waste his life when he became a Christian and left his Islamic background and his family cast him away and he was imprisoned for his faith just last spring, about a year ago now, and was tortured and beaten for a year? Did he waste his life? Did Yakubu Sanusi, a doctor in Nigeria, waste his life when he chose to live and love people as Jesus lived and loved, helping out people who are sick, even though he didn't have the best technology as a doctor? Is he wasting his life? Do Eric and Michelle Stapleton waste their lives when they took their families and left the States and went to Vanuatu to translate the Bible so people can have this hope? Are they wasting their lives? Did Margie and Kerwin, who came to share their testimony, how God redeemed them, would, have they wasted their lives? They wouldn't. They haven't. And you wouldn't have if you gave it to Jesus. The life worth living is a life that's lived to give God all the glory, that Jesus would receive all the praise, and that we would live out for him, being unshakable in our faith, although people would want to bring it down. It's the life that says, Jesus, I'm living for you. I'm giving it all up. There's no greater joy in that life, brothers and sisters. And my prayer, our prayer, is that today you would put your trust in Jesus if you haven't. If today you've believed in his death, his resurrection, but haven't really surrendered your life to him, that you would do that today. Or if maybe you came in today as one who didn't believe in God. And yet, you see that there's power in Jesus' name, that God is real, that he gives us hope. And you can have hope beyond this life. In one sense, there's one life to live, but in another sense, there's another after. If you came in today unsure, let today be the day where you give your life to Jesus. What we're going to do now, we're going to have prayer counselors come forward. Would you make your way up here, prayer counselors? And there'll be some in the balcony as well. And as we sing our last song, our last two songs, what we desire is that you would take to heart this message from 1 Corinthians. And that you would hear what God's trying to tell you. That you wouldn't let these excuses put you, to, to, to prevent you from choosing Him. And as these last two songs are sung, Come and, come and pray with somebody. I know they're so eager to pray with you.